the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This episode is brought to you by Hollyhock, a not-for-profit leadership center located on beautiful Cortez Island, B.C., where the ancient cedar rainforest meets the Salish Sea and hosts to world-renowned teachers on the cutting edge of spiritual wisdom and collective action. Stay tuned till the end of this episode when I'll share a special discount code for Numinous Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today I'm speaking with psychotherapist Francis Weller, author of one of the most dog-eared, underlined, and book-darted titles on my shelf, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and the Sacred Work of Grief. I've wanted to speak with Francis for a long time, uh, not only because of his seminal book on grief, but also because we have dear mutual friends in common, so his work has influenced and shaped me in ways both intellectual and interpersonal. And I must say, though I fully expected to be charmed and to learn and to enjoy our conversation, I was still a little taken aback by how impressed I was with the way he answered some of my more pointed questions in this conversation. Now, just a caution for some of my listeners. When I hear myself in this interview, I really hear my bias towards binary language around gender and heterosupremacy, just more generally. And that's got to be really aggravating for a lot of people. And I am sorry, and I'm working on it. And this has been really instructive for me, uh, listening to myself. So, But I'd ask you to listen for how Francis very gently corrects me and models a more inclusive approach. So I very much appreciated his example of that, and I thought you might too. There are some long pauses in this conversation, which I didn't edit out. It's what the radio folks call dead air. But if you listen carefully, the air is very much alive in those moments with our breath and our tears and our holding space for each other. I connected with Francis online on September 11th, 2019. He was at home in Sonoma County, California. So, Francis, what identities do you lead with? Uh, I guess in terms of the gendered identity, it would be him and his. Mostly, I consider myself a, a tracker, a soul activist is the term I like to use the most. I'm a tracker of soul in the individuals I sit with, but also trying to track the soul of culture. I'm trying to see where there's little glimpses of life trying to break up through the concrete and through the sediment of untouched sorrow in the culture. Hmm. You're uh, well known for a book that was published in 2015 called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And uh, just so people have a frame of reference for your work, uh, in your book, you describe what you call the five gates of grief. Could you give listeners just a brief, brief overview of what you're exploring with those gates? Yeah, I think the value of those, that way of imagining it, uh, gives access to many layers of grief that were never being touched. In, in any context. Um, the first gate is the only one that really is culturally acknowledged, which is to lose something you love. 
a friendship, a marriage, a partner, a child, a pet, a home. And that's the only one where someone in the culture can come up to you and say, I'm really sorry for your loss. So that's the culturally acknowledged gate. And much happens at that gate and we're all vulnerable to it. We will all lose everything that we love. There's no exceptions to that rule. It's a very fierce rule. The Buddhists call it impermanence. You get to hold on to nothing. The second gate is the parts of us that have not known love. So in any family system, religious system, political, cultural system, you're taught very quickly what parts of you are welcomed and which parts must be rid. So in my family, my education, my Catholic background, I had to get rid of anger, I had to get rid of sensuality, I had to get rid of passion and exuberance. I had to basically silence my sorrow. All those pieces had to go into exile. Now, the psyche does not like having fragmentation as a state. It wants its, its integrity reestablished. So every part that we lose is a, is a place of loss. And the proper response to loss is grief, but you cannot grieve for something that you've learned now to hold with contempt. And this is the primary work of psychotherapy, is the, is the reclaiming of lost pieces of soul. Um, is that clear, second gate? Mm, yep. All right, third gate uh, are the sorrows of the world. And we are being deluged by the sorrows of the world every day from simple things like roadkill. You know, I acknowledge all, all the dead on the side of the road every day that I drive into work. Someone has been sacrificed during the night. Um, to clear cuts of land, you know, for more grapes here in Sonoma County, to, you know, the uh, wild oscillations in ocean temperatures causing us to Acknowledge over 200 whale deaths that have washed up on our shores in the past. Those are the only ones that have come ashore. Most of them just sink. But so there's a constancy of, of sorrows attached to the suffering of the planet right now. Watersheds, salmon, uh, everything is under great, great uh, distress. And that's absolutely woven into our body. There is no separation between psyche and planet. None. Whatever fiction we have about that is, is costing us a tremendous uh, amount of suffering. It the also fire. sounds actually like it relates to the second gate where this fiction that we've been conditioned to believe that we're somehow not embedded in the family of things. That's right. Mary Oliver yeah. would say that's another loss. Yeah, absolutely. Which, in a sense, leads to the fourth gate. Fourth one, I, I didn't name this one initially, but it has become. It kept becoming more and more clear when we're gathered in ritual space together that some ancient memory echo gets stirred. And in some ways, we feel most at home when we're in a setting like that, singing together, sharing ritual, grieving together welcoming each other, sharing dreams in the morning, sharing meals, but that's what we expected. That's woven deep into us. So the fourth gate is what we expected and did not receive. Mm -hmm. So there's this hole, there's this emptiness that we basically blame ourselves for. 
but if I was more perfect, more whole, more spiritual, I wouldn't feel so empty. But this emptiness is not a reflection of personal uh, inadequacies, it's a reflection of a cultural loss. That mm. so what we anticipated when we came here, as R.D. Lang, the psychiatrist, said we, we arrive here as Stone Age children. So all of the Stone Age expectations for all the things I just listed, sitting under the stars at night, listening to the great stories around the campfire, gathering wood together, hunting together, whatever it is, that's wired into our beings. And when that doesn't show up, there's this kind of background ache, this great hole, this great emptiness that gnaws at us a lifetime. That and culturally we try to fill up with shit, you know, like, you know, I didn't think you can find on the in the mall or on the internet or uh, we try to fill that hole with secondary satisfactions. Mm-hmm. The last gate is what I call ancestral grief. And ancestral grief has many components to it. The most basic one is that at some point in our own ancestral lineage, we left an intact tribal culture that had implicit in it its own rituals, its own language, its own intimacy with the land base, um, its own customs, its own food. uh, And almost all of that got severed, usually by great levels of distress. People didn't leave typically voluntarily. They left because the conditions politically, religiously, ecologically, economically were so harsh. Um, So that severance occurred. And then there's another profound layer of grief that particularly for European Americans when they arrived here on this continent, what they did to the indigenous populations, uh, decimating uh, whole tribal peoples, languages, um, knowledge of of plant and animal traditions, you know, the losses there are enormous. And and then you uh, add on top of that the whole importation of slavery and the destruction of ecosystems. These are in our bones every day and it's clearly in the cultural body. we hear it constantly, the racial un- unrest, the issues between white and people of color. This is such untouched material and we try to placate it or you know, cover over it by economic success or whatever. But at the soul level, at the collective soul level, we're in great trouble. So those are the five gates. Thank you. Your work seems to be very complementary to Joanna Macy's work, The The Great Turning. And, you know, her work has been around for a long time. Your book came out in 2015. You'd been working, obviously, many people before that. Um, But there there seems to be almost like a a moment for grief right now, Uh, if if that's kind of a, you know, if that can be a thing, that it's kind of trendy almost there's real pickup um do you notice that and what would you attribute that to i would say well when i first started leading grief rituals i had to convince people to come you know so this is almost 20 years ago i had to say no no this is really valuable it's important work 
And they said, well, why would I want to spend a weekend crying? I mean, I could go shopping. You know, there's so many, there's a ball game on. There's so many things I want to do. And then I would say around 2012 to 2014, the denial began to crack collectively. The news coming out, the environmental edges of research and findings. Suddenly, I remember giving a book reading. This is before my, my version of the last version. This is my own self-published um, book. It was at a place in San Rafael called Book Passage. And they invited me to come down and read out of my little book. And that was very sweet. And we showed up and they gave us lunch out on the patio. And he said, you know, if only a handful of people show up, we'll just sit in a circle and we'll talk. I said, it's fine. No expectations. They came out a little later. He said, there's, there's quite a crowd gathering. Came back a little later. He says, well, it's, it's standing room only. <laughs> We've had to move all of the bookshelves out of the way. There were you know, well over 100 some odd people. They weren't coming because of me. My name was not well known at that point. But the topic. People were finally beginning to say, we're in trouble. And the grief that's kind of surging behind this trouble is unmistakable. And now I think becoming undeniable. And I often say that it may be grief that saves our ass. It may be the broken heart. If anything's gonna have any possibility of changing the way we are in relationship to the earth, it's gonna to have to come through the heart. And right now the heart is breaking. Mm -hmm. And it may be, as Joanna said, it's the broken heart that's capable of loving vast things. Mm -hmm. uh, so my hope is, if there's any hope in this at all, it's that our, our brokenness will lead us to some sense of revelation that there is no separation between my well-being and the planet's well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your timeline lines up actually perfectly it maps over my experience and also my husband Ruben's experience um I think I guess we could place his sort of emotional breakdown uh, that just was um a vast global experience of grief maybe 20 2006 2007 and uh mine just uh, just I felt like I collapsed at the same time as the global economy collapsed in about mm -hmm. 2009 um and certainly a lot of my material possessions left and that made me feel very vulnerable but um so you know when we uh became a couple in 2009 we came you know, quote unquote, grief soaked, as they say in some of these circles. And, and uh, it was so wonderful to feel less crazy that we'd found, you know, this, this kindred spirit in each other. And so we've been working, you know, so that's a decade ago now. We've been, you know, we, we've done the grief walking, we've been to the rituals, we, we've done those things. And um, it was maybe last year that my husband, uh, kind of ask the question like how do I know if I'm actually doing grief like I feel grief but how do we know if we're doing grief well I think the main thing is that is that we're taught so little about grief and so when it comes to us which is inevitable the strategic mode we take is how do I endure it 
how do I hope to get to the other end of this without having my life completely be torn apart? To do grief well it requires engagement. We have to turn toward the sorrow. We have to engage it. It's not a passive endurance, it's an active engagement. I use alchemy a lot as, as my metaphoric system. So when grief comes, we can imagine that's what's in the vessel at this point is sorrow, loss. Um, the idea from alchemy is that you have to keep the material warm. If you don't keep it warm, it will harden and congeal. And isn't that what's happened in this culture? Because we haven't turned towards grief. See, grief isn't just an emotion. It's also a faculty of being human. And if we are not skilled in that faculty, we don't know how to, we don't know how to turn toward it when it arrives. And so grief typically then will harden and congeal and my heart will close and I will become non-responsive to the sorrows of the world. So how do we know if we're doing grief well? We're still attuned to the sorrows of the world. We're not shutting down to them. We're actually compelled in a sense to stay present. If we don't register the losses of clear cuts, who will? If we don't honor the deaths of the whales, who will? Who will protest? Who will say no more? Who will put their bodies on the line? That's part of why I'm so uh, touched by traditional cultures. Um, they, because of their, I'm, I'm gonna generalize for a bit, but those cultures where initiations are still intact, their bodies are wedded to the land. So if there's an incursion by an oil company or a mining company, the insult to the land is an insult to their soul. So they will fight to the death. We might have a hard time writing a letter to our congressperson. Yeah. That's, that's too much for me to do. But for a traditional person, indigenous person, there's no separation between land and soul, between land and self. So they will fight to the death. And that's the model I think we need right now. Mm -hmm. What do you say to folks who aren't as fortunate as Ruben and I, where, where there's one partner who is quite attuned to the griefs of the world or, you know, grieving the world we were promised and never got or, or that sort of thing. The other one is like, wow, I've got like the gloomy roomy from hell here. Like, you know, the, the folks who are skeptical that if you, if you turn towards the grief and you're, and you're always attuned to the grief, then how do you feel joy? I mean, I know that there's kind of, it's almost cliche to say, you know, the, the, the deeper there is, the higher the reach, right? Like the, the, the deeper your capacity for grief, the, the greater your capacity for joy. But I, I find a lot of skepticism when I tell people that. <laughs> what do you find? Uh, it's, you know, it's self-evident when you um, begin to engage grief, not again, not as an, uh, an energy that wants to take you hostage, but it actually, it is really the reflection of love. I mean, don't we grieve because what we love has been harmed or assaulted or injured or damaged or... Um, so to grieve well and you begin to understand that grief has its own vitality. It's not an energy of depression. We typically associate it with deadness. 
but like I write about, I said, grief is feral. It's a, you cannot domesticate it. It is a wild, rambunctious energy. When you're taken by grief, you're on your knees, you're rolling on the ground, you're sobbing, you're screaming. This is hardly decorum of a you know, well put together individual, <laughs> but it is a person deep in grief. They are alive, they are vital. And when we're doing our grief ritual weekends, one of the prayers we make is that we're not here for our own purposes alone. We're here so that our hearts might be made more spacious so that we can love this world more vividly. So we can walk in the streets and see the youth and give them what they need, you know, so that we can protect what we love. Um, so, and invariably during the ritual, the, the core parts of the ritual, as we get two thirds, three fourths of the way through the grieving, there's this infectious joy that begins to come in the room. And by the time we're done, we are giddy, <laughs> you know? So, and in our teachings, we say that, you know, the, the mark of a mature human being is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other. And to be stretched large by these two presences. To pick up only one or the other, if I only pick up grief, I will become bitter, cynical, and depressed. If I only pick up gratitude, I'll remain somewhat superficial. I'll appreciate things, but I will, I will lack the depth of compassion for another person's sorrow. I won't be able to meet them in their grief. So together they form the prayer of life. You know, at any given moment, when your heart is breaking, you can look up and catch the glint of sunlight on the maple leaves. They're there simultaneously. And our job is to be able to register both of those things. You know, to let them both work us deeply. Grief changes us. It ripens us as a human being. We do not mature as human beings without some deep relationship to sorrow. Mm -hmm. What you've said has really touched me, um, especially because I've realized recently I was able to articulate uh, something. Somebody asked me when I was leading a workshop, like, so, so if all this stuff is happening in the world and, you know, if we have to be so honest about climate change and collapse and all that, what is the point? Why, why do you do this? And I said, because I'm in love with poignancy, just the poignance of all of this is happening and people are still having babies and falling in love and it just gets me. I'm just in love with it. I, I yeah, I love it. Mm. So in your book, you talk about a kind of, it, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a side note, but there's this sort of short section that I found super compelling and was hoping for a second book about, uh, can you explain what non-redemptive mourning means? I came across that in the writings of the two women, Mary Watkins and Helene Schulman. They wrote a book, I can't think of the exact title, is something about towards uh, liberation psychology or psychologies of liberation, I think, or something like that. And they had this term that really caught me as well, this idea of non-redemptive mourning. What is non-redemptive mourning? And they described it as, as, they, as they say, there's some losses 
culturally primarily, but also in our individual lives that are so great that we should not work towards resolution. We should not work towards resolving this grief, but we should do what, there's two kind of characteristics of grief. One of them is to express it and to basically learn how to come into a different relationship with it. The other side of grief is it's about memory. Non-redemptive grief is primarily about memorial, that we do not forget what happened here. Wounded knee, Vietnam Memorial, the Rwandan Genocide Memorial, Holocaust Memorial. These are all places, they're holy ground. When you go there, you're not going there to resolve something. You're going there to honor something that we must not forget. So non-redemptive mourning means basically the mourning that we should do periodically, regularly. Like there's like the Rwandan genocide. There's a beautiful book by uh, Terry Tempest Williams called Finding Beauty in a Broken World. And she was taken to Rwanda by a woman named Lily Ye, who is this amazing, amazing soul activist who goes into the hearts of the worst places on the planet and begins at ground zero and begins to gather broken glass and begins to make mosaics and begins to make beauty out of these broken places. So she told Terry, we're going to Rwanda. Terry says, I'm not going to Rwanda. She says, we're going to Rwanda. We have to go and we have to do something to help these people honor the genocide. If we don't and it gets forgotten, we will repeat. So she went and she, and so they do this yearly ritual where they walk down below the surface of the earth and underneath the ground are all the bones of all the genocide victims. And you cannot not walk in that place and be profoundly, profoundly deranged, which is the effect of ritual. Ritual is meant to derange us. So that's the purpose of non-redemptive mourning is to, is to keep it fresh, is to keep our memory attached to and aware of what has happened that we cannot risk forgetting. Hmm. So this brings me to a, a rhythm, I would call it, that I'm noticing in North American society anyway. Um, a, a rhythm around some forms of grief that we seem to pick up and put down pr pretty quickly, which is not the same as memorializing. And, and so it, sort of to, to enter this more nuanced discussion of grief a little slowly, um, I, I want to quote from your book. You say in the introduction that without some familiarity with sorrow, quote, we remain caught in adolescent strategies of avoidance and heroic striving end quote. So you talk about doing grief work as, another quote, undermining our society's quiet agreement that we will behave and be in control of our emotions, end quote. So in this section in the introduction, you use the term society, um, but what you're describing sounds more accurately described to me as patriarchy. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what happens to boys and men when they're not brought up in a tradition of mourning and open grieving 
and then when that patriarchal society um, uh, is is allowed to perpetuate, what happens? What do you think happens to the girls and women? What's the impact on them living in a society where with men who don't grieve? <laughs> it's a bit of a thick question. <laughs> oh, heck no. That's, that's a light, lighthearted one. And now a quick break for our sponsor, Hollyhock, Canada's lifelong learning center on Cortez Island, BC. Hollyhock was on my bucket list for a lot of years. I actually first heard about it from my friend Sarah, Sarah Selecki. Remember her from episodes 8 and 102 of the podcast. She's the award-winning author of This Cake is for the Party and Radiant Shimmering Light coming soon to a television streaming service near you. So like 20 years ago, Sarah was doing karma yoga at Hollyhock, working in their kitchens and gardens in exchange for workshops. And it sounded so amazing. And I really wanted to go. Uh, but it wasn't until 20... Uh, when was it? Yeah, 2000, 2007, that I, I finally found myself at Hollyhock attending their annual Social Venture Institute for Change-Driven Entrepreneurs. And that was a game changer for me, not necessarily because it launched my world-changing business idea or anything, but, but that's where I met people that ended up shaping my mind and my heart in, in just tremendous ways I couldn't have predicted then. That's where I sat in circle with Adrienne Marie Brown, and she taught us how to protest safely. That's where I met my friend Lauren Bacon, episode 15, who today is my coach and helps me with imposter complex. I met uh, Suzanne and Madeline from Luna Pads and eventually went on to volunteer with Madeline on uh, G-Day for Girls, a community coming-of-age event for uh, adolescents or, or girls entering adolescence, age 10 to 12. It's now a national and international movement. I met Nakaya Seeds, episode 74, this year. So like 20 years later, we co-led a weekend of indigo dyeing and ancestral drum making. So, I mean, I couldn't have known how the echoes uh, would reach me in the future. I, I just, I can't explain how impactful Hollyhock has been on my life, other than to say the land called me there so I could cross paths with people I needed to know. And since then, I've stayed in relationship with folks at Hollyhock, both as an attender of workshops and an invited teacher. And when I look at their offerings this year, I'm, I'm like my jaw drops. I'm amazed by how they've continued to make their mission more and more inclusive of marginalized and emergent voices, people that are dear to me who work with them, um, who are diversifying the staff and bringing a more inclusive language to the programs and um, and to the, the, the psyche and the soul of the organization. And they keep trying to center justice in their work. So the 2020 catalog is just, I mean, like, what are you into? Do, do you want to deepen your knowledge or heighten your experience of life next year? You want to Wim Hof? It's happening in May. Have you been reading Sharon Blackie for a few years? She's coming to Hollyhock in May. Sharon Blackie, author of If Women Rose Rooted and The Enchanted Life. I mean, that that's huge. That blows me away. And I've taken some of her year-long online courses. Her research is outstanding. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Forest therapy. Is there a better place than the rugged, mystical, magical West Coast to enter into a deeper relationship with the medicine of trees and fungi and lichen and salau? 
I mean, and getting to Cortez Island, I get it. It's, it's, you know, kind of a planes, trains, automobiles, but it is the threshold experience of, you know, pilgrimage. It, it, the getting there is part of the journey, right? And I also want to uh, give a special highlight to our dear friend, Rochelle Lamb, who does an annual deep dive into nonviolent communication training at Hollyhock, but not NVC like you've learned anywhere else. No, you're not going to get off with scripts and, you know, stilted 1960s robot speech about you have a need for appreciation from your partner or whatever. You're like, you're going to, you're going to learn about living in the ashes of the world together with grief and love and anger and bitter, bitter disappointment, all the while loving it and speaking praise to it. And the poetry, the poetry she shares will break you open. You'll never communicate the same way again. That's also happening at Hollyhock again this year in early June. I mean, the list, my friends, of teachers, Rupert Shelbrake, David Abram, Paul Stamets, the mushroom guy. I mean, he's been teaching there decades now. Plus, emerging leaders and important voices like Kim Haxton of Indigenize. She's a Potawatomi First Nations teacher. Um, she's encouraging a more decolonized approach to leadership and personal development. And you know who else is going to Cortez? Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Yes, you can go to Radical Dharma Camp for racial justice and anti-oppression with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and Suzanne Hawks at Hollyhock. I mean, the things you can learn. Like, do you, do you want to know more about cancer-informed yoga therapy? Are you a health professional? Do you want to look at fostering resilience for health professionals? You know, are you a teacher? Maybe you should look at the future of children, transforming educational paradigm. I mean, like everything. If, if, if you're a singer, if you're a writer, if you're a painter, if you're a storyteller, if you're into movement somatics, equine therapies, they have multiple offerings in each of those categories. So this is the year, my friends, this is your year. Sometimes a bucket list can seem a bit daunting, like you build it up so much and then you never go. But this year, Hollyhock is making it easier than ever. And as I mentioned, the organization has been going through a big, tra it's so different from when I was there in 2007, where it was like basically 99% white, top down, sideways. Uh, no, it's so much more diverse. It's so much more inclusive. There are scholarships and alternate tuition payment options. You can volunteer and stay for a month in the residency service program, what used to be called Karma Yoga. Um, you could stay for a mini workshop. You can make your own retreat with a holiday. And I really believe these kinds of experiences, these in-person, real-life, interpersonal neurobiology, you know, like that in real-life space right brain to right brain, heart to heart is so important when we have so much grief to process. Hollyhock really does offer a space and support to do that work. And it's often women who tend to go to these kinds of retreats, right? But like, what would happen if more men also took the time to do personal and spiritual development at places like Hollyhock? And there's tons of great programs that are about healing and processing grief. So I'll share that discount code at the end of the episode. But now... Let's go back and hear how Francis fielded my question. Let's go back to the beginning. Remain caught in adolescent strategies of striving. As I said before, you know, grief is not just uh, an emotion. It's a, it's a core faculty of being human. And we are taught nothing about grief. Um, so when it does come up, um, we are left with how do I get 
through this, that endurance idea. Or we try to, the adolescent uh, idea is that it's a heroic trajectory. We try to rise above. We try to, you know, not show vulnerability, but to show muscle and strength, competency. There was a moment, I mean, today's 9-11, right? So what was it, 50, how many years ago? Uh, 18 years ago now, uh, our country was attacked. And there was a moment, you could feel it, around the world when the gate of grief was opened. And we almost walked through it. But within a few days, the heroic posture asserted itself. And we were told to basically go shopping and go to war. And so the message is abundantly clear. We will not feel this. We will not digest this. We will not metabolize this into medicine. But we will actually take it and it will add to the cancer. It will add to the sickness of our, of our culture. Because grief that's not metabolized doesn't just go away. It mutates into, you know, what we're seeing right now, this kind of cold, harsh, deadening reality. So what happens to boys and to men? Well, they're caught between a juxtaposition between love and power. Jung had a phrase, Carl Jung had a phrase, he said, where love rules, there, to, there the will to power is absent. Where power predominates, there love is lacking. The one is the shadow of the other. So what I think Jung is saying is if you choose either one of those, you create a polarity, you, you create a shadow in the other. So one of the reactions that happens for boys is they take up a, 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 either a posture of passivity and become nice boys, they choose love, and then their power goes into the shadow to become very passive, uh, impotent, um, non-assertive, non or they become enraged and they choose power. And then their love goes into the shadow and they become de detached and distanced, cool, you know, abstract. But what I think Jung is saying is you cannot choose either one. You must choose both. And that power needs love in order to mature into justice, into protection. Love without power is sentimentality. It's maudlin, it's hallmark. <laughs> but love with power is compassion, it's protection. You know, these things ripen each other. So what happens? We have, a, we have a polarity between passivity and rage. And we can see that constantly in a lot of the men. They either remain very nice adolescent boys, no matter what their age is, or they become rageaholics. And they rip and tear whatever's in front of them to shreds. Would you also include in the kind of nice boy thing, um, like a bystander position? with the enraged male. Absolutely. That's that, pass that passivity. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to risk exposure. We don't want to risk getting hurt. Um, 
that adolescent strategy is really a, you know about how do you how do you cope mm -hmm. but it does not empower so the work that i have done i don't know if i want to go there right now uh, shall we go, go there yeah go ahead the work I've, i did for 17 years of leading men's initiation um, was a year-long process of helping men to lead that adolescent world you know uh, the objective of initiation was never for the individual. The objective of all initiations that I've ever come across was the activation of the innate set of capacities and medicines that we all come here with on behalf of the community. It was an act of sacrifice on the individual's part for the well-being of the whole. So we don't have that now. So now it's all about me. We're reduced to kind of a singularity of focus, which is the individual. It's private. It's my own well-being. Uh, we live in a flatline culture. So men are particularly compressed into what they're allowed to feel. They're allowed to feel anger. they're allowed to feel anger they really can't express sadness that's too vulnerable it puts a dent in their heroic facade but they're allowed to feel anger did i mention anger <laughs> right <laughs> but there are, there's a very narrow range of what a man's allowed to feel and so we're compressed into this flat line and doesn't give a man much room to express what's really in his heart. Now, we'll get into this a little bit later because I know you have some other questions about that. The impact on women and, and girls? Well, shit. Um, if a man is walking with basically a deep core sense of shame from basically a, a, a strong sense of inadequacy, he will not know how to see and honor the value in a woman. In fact, he will try to make her even more inferior. I mean, this is the basically the uh, angle of descent in a patriarchal culture, from privileged whites down to people of color, to marginalized uh, sections, to women. Everything flows down into an inferiority. And depending upon where you are, the more marginalized and the more damage is done to the, you know, to the murder of trans people, to you know, the dehumanizing. Coming out of a place, and this is what I've sat with hundreds and hundreds, thousands of times with men, is how much they carry a core feeling of inadequacy. And they cover up with this bravado of power and dominance, uh, as a way to mitigate against any feelings of inadequacy. If they would, could confess that, um, not, you know, there's a lot, there's a <laughs> passage of Jung's I want to share, but it's, it's a little long, but should I drop it in there? Sure. He said, um, there's a, a gendered term, but he says, um, there appears to be a conscience in mankind that severely punishes the man who does not somehow and in some way, at whatever cost to his pride, cease to defend and assert himself, and instead confess himself fallible 
and human. Until he can do this, an impenetrable wall shuts him out from the living experience of being a man among men. So until men are given this permission to confess our fallibility and our humanness, we remain isolated and disconnected from one another, suspicious, mm-hmm. you know, anxious, uh, fearful of one another. Well, and one of the impacts I've noticed is that also then dependent on um, women or femme-identified folks to to be the locus of their entire emotional life, you know, like there's, it's like, okay. And so now, um, not only do I need for you to make me feel powerful as partner, but also to nurture my fallibility and be my confidant and be my friend, because I actually don't have friends I can talk to about these things. And then even by, you know, kind of extension, um, it's like there's an inability to even recognize uh, the non-binariness of the world that, you know, that, and, and you mentioned violence against trans folks. And um, I've even done it in, in my questioning, the erasure of uh, non-binary folks, you know, it's just that patriarchal kind of lockdown um, really means that it does sort of make I think one of the impacts creates one impact on on women, girls, those who present as more femme, as needing to now uh, be the place where I outsource my emotional life, and and so I'm I'm also you know you mentioned leading men's circles, and this is this is partially anecdotal, but I I'm I'm just going to ask you this this question. So I've heard from men who have been regular attendees, weekly attendees for a decade of a men's circle. And, you know, there's, I know there are many kinds of um, uh, men's circles and some of them are more friendship building, some are more personal development or rites of passage and initiation like you had. But I think this one of the, like sort of the weekly meeting, uh, not exactly poker game, but a gathering of men to, to talk and you know some effort at um, maybe self-actualization or connection, um, and recognizing that there are certain specific problems and um, pressures at being a man. So they're going weekly, and when I'm asking them, like, okay, here we are in the Me Too era. What the fuck have you guys been doing for the last decade at these men's circles that this is still going on? And there's cover-ups of abuse. You know, you you might even be attending with somebody who is um, in abusive relationship with a partner. What are you doing? And one friend said, uh, he said, yeah, you know, we, um, we do talk. We talk a lot about work, talk a lot about coffee, and if somebody's had a fight with their wife or is sleeping on the couch, we talk about how we're having less and less sex, basically. <laughs> and, you know, he's being just very honest, like, yeah, these are my best friends. But did we talk about, you know, my dad's death? Well, beyond the funeral. And, you know, I might have told some stories about my dad, but like, not, not really. So when I look around and think, you know, okay, we've had a men's circle or a men's movement, self-actualization movement for a few decades now. What, what, what have you guys been doing 
<laughs> Can I go back one second? For sure. To the, to the piece you brought up about men turning to women for emotional support. Um, that has been disastrous. Uh, as you, as a woman, know. Uh, what it ends up doing is it creates a, a, a parent-child dynamic. So I encourage a lot of the women I see you know, with partners to say to them, I appreciate your coming to me. Go tell your friend first, then come to me. I'll talk to you about this, but not as your primary source. I cannot be your mother. I cannot take care of this for you. It doesn't do you any good for me to just keep being a place to hold you. You need a fiercer circle sometimes. Uh, and I say that to the men as well. Don't bring this initially to your partner or to a woman. Find a man that you can talk to. Uh, this has to break. Now, back to your current question. Uh, I'm sure that that happens in men's groups, uh, that there is a kind of a, a limitation to the depth of vulnerability we're willing to go to. Doesn't surprise me. The groups I'm familiar with don't stop there. Like the initiation groups, when we put out the word initially back in 1997 that we were starting a project called Men of Spirit, we said, if you're only interested in personal growth, don't bother. We don't care. This is not about making you a better person. If you are interested in the generations to come and the, and the, and the condition of culture, show up, come. So this project was really devoted to creating circles of men up and all the way up and down the coast. We have circles of men whose primary objective is to create a circle of service, not a circle of narcissism. <laughs> you know, it's really intended to address the sorrows of their lives, of course, because as all those gates are impending, you know, impinging on us, we're feeling it too. So we do need places to do that. But beyond that, as initiated men, your job is in the community. How are you showing up? So they show up as coaches, as, as um, the uh, restorative justice movement. We have a lot of, lot of our men working in restorative justice, uh, trying to bring what they've experienced through this process. So it is not about just talking amongst ourselves. It's really about what is happening to us as a culture and how to, what's my role? How do I participate? It can be small, it can be large, it doesn't matter, but I mean, I remember giving a talk up in Victoria some years back and uh, a young woman stood up and asked the questions, you know, I was talking about conditions that we're facing. She said, so what's the answer? And a very legitimate question from a young teenage, 20 year old. What's the answer? And I said, there is no answer. So that there is a response. And every single one of us must decipher what that response looks like. And we must be committed to bringing that response out into the culture, into our communities, into our families. You know, if we don't, that medicine will not be delivered. So the, the men's groups I'm familiar with, 
that's what we're doing. Hmm. We're trying to find ways of responding and we'll put out, you know, we'll do the grief rituals, we'll do uh, my friends Larry and Doug put on this, you know, these large poetry events that bring the young poets in to put their work out there and they're mentoring young kids to with their poetry and the men I know are out working. Mm, that's a relief. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it makes me think though also, okay, so you're talking about this nuanced uh, response, right? That's that's attuned and sensitive to, to the needs of the collective. Uh, in her book, The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love, Bell Hooks actually challenges women, feminists in particular, to also acknowledge that if you want your men to feel you can't get angry and shut them down or, you know, kind of like, well, welcome to the party kind of thing when they do start to express their grief. And um, it, I know in my marriage and, and Ruben would also be the first to say, this has been tremendously challenging because, you know, as a woman, when you've been trying to express patriarchal overtones in your relationship and, and just an inappropriate emotional dependency. And sometimes that shows up as um, talking about grief. Sometimes it's um, sex. Sometimes it's, you know, you know, something else where it's just this, uh, as you said, like a parentified role of, of yeah. you know, just inappropriate <clears throat> mm -hmm. and overcompensating. And so then to have my husband suddenly go, oh my God, patriarchy and oh my God, how I've participated and oh my God, how I've perpetuated and inflicted on you. And then you know, I can't really say anything because he collapses into grief. And, and it's been a real challenge for me to, to kind of go, okay, how do we now navigate this? And so, of course, you know, it requires, we each have our own therapist and then we have a couple's therapist and, you know, we're, we're both reading the books. But, but I think that that's also an interesting uh, thought for, for women who we are asking for um, more uh, a more equitable sharing of the load of grief work, but a, a lot of us will feel angry when suddenly our men do start to feel and we're like, oh my God, now I have to wait again. I have to wait again to get my needs met. But I think that's something that we just have to do. You know, I think we do, not that we have to be the only person holding space, um, but to acknowledge that that's just another form of like inflicting patriarchy on men that we get impatient and irritated now that they're suddenly aware of the grief. Um, how do you, wh what do you notice about that when men start to feel, how does that go for their families and communities and partnerships? Do you see any pattern there? Well, we try, particularly when we're doing the initiation work, we would meet with the partners. Uh, again, not always you know, hetero couples, but we would meet with all the partners and we would say, this was what you might expect. This is what might happen. As we begin to crack open some of the repressed emotional ground that your partner has been carrying. Jung had another wonderful thought. He says, what goes into the shadow just doesn't sit there passively. It regresses and becomes more primitive. So when we start bringing our grief out or anger out or whatever, it's not gonna come out pretty. 
that's going to come out ragged and jagged and you know sharp and it may cut you and it's by all means please say you can't cut me with your grief or with your anger i'm i'm open to you showing it but make no mistake that i am not the target of this well, a and you need a larger vessel to hold this than me. So a lot of men end up coming to grief rituals with their partners and, or by themselves and just saying, I have to get clear about this ground. So I'm not just dumping it on my partner. You know, it's their emotional education. And they, what Psyche is expecting is a communal ground for that. Without the village, well, then we particularize it to one person and that that person becomes the village for that man and that's it's oppressive it's crushing so honor the fact that they're breaking open thank you for doing that but you need a bigger vessel mm. you, need, you need a ground that's capable of holding all of this do you think there could be something non-redemptive you know in terms of the mourning of of patriarchy as well i mean i i find that there are moments where it captures the imagination of our culture, you know, and, and we have um, steps forward in terms of acknowledging um, sexual assault, uh, abuse, et cetera, but we put it down pretty quickly. And, you know, then we kind of end up with like woke dudes, you know, <laughs> who are now allies. And yet they might still also be, you know, really lascivious in, in in social circumstances or they you know they're, they're still not kind of getting it at a, at a personal level and this is where i've been really kind of chewing on this non-redemptive mourning like how how could we have some of that around um sexual assault and patriarchy what, what are your thoughts on that um <clears throat> they're complex they're um it's certainly that we cannot approach this whole territory with the idea of resolution, mm -hmm. like we're going to resolve this and be done with it. It is non-redemptive. We have to keep it in front of us constantly because the tendency to go back to sleep is so great. So we have to keep it in front of us. And I want to share a thought, um, maybe controversial, I don't know, but I have a friend from Africa named Maladoma Some. You may have heard of Maladoma. We were teaching together for you know, four or five, six years. I remember one time someone asked him a question. And the question was basically, you know, I've been to your village now. You guys live in extreme poverty. And I noticed that in the in the bush on some of these shrines, you'd have these gold statues, these gold images. Why don't you take that gold and trade it in and get some money back and you could raise the standard of living for your people? I mean, very legitimate Western, <laughs> you know, patriarchal-based idea. His comment struck me. He said, whenever you take something that belongs to the sacred, and you separate it from the sacred, it becomes a torment to those who have caused its separation. Now I think about sexuality. At one point in our deep lineage, 
that was sacred ground. And some point, probably in the last five to 6,000 years, that was ruptured. And sexuality became objectified and cold. And it's become a torment to those who've caused its separation. Nobody benefits from patriarchy. You know, I have not met a man who feels confident and whole in his erotic life, but has to pretend that he's macho and not afraid and can fuck anything. Excuse me, I don't know if I can say that on your show or not. But, Can't. Um, um, but has lost his soul, you know? Um, so this is patriarchy, this, what belonged to the sacred and has been taken from the sacred has caused such trauma in every human being in this culture. I mean, none of us are immune. Uh, we carry it differently. The shards of the wounds inflict differently, I think, in the, across the, all the genders. Uh, and my work has been to try to redeem the masculine, uh, the masculinities relationship to the erotic, uh, to soul. Um, because we're, we're continuing to do a great deal of harm. Uh, another one of the truths that came out of the village in, in Africa was that women hold a particular secret to the underworld that they will only open when they feel safe. So spiritually, we're also compromised by women not feeling safe in this culture. There's a whole territory that could open if we could provide a setting in which the women would feel, again, all genders would feel safe and protected. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, uh, thought experiment. <laughs> let's, let's get on this thought train here, Francis. So your book was published in 2015, uh, same year that there were other books published um, yes. by white males <clears throat> on grief. And, and in the last few years, there's, there has been a bit of a zeitgeist that has resulted in, in uh, you know, a handful, but I would say a bunch of like mythopoetic white dudes at the mic who are talking about grief and these things. So, so I'd like to bring in some of these thoughts here about the like patriarchy, but, but also maybe some attachment here. And um, so what I've noticed is that uh, our culture still loves a fairly like aloof, powerful, I'm going to say avoidant, um, not particularly anxiously attached man. And so although there may be the language of, you know, poetry and a lot of lyricism, actually the way uh, many of uh, the folks that we put on pedestals are actually quite avoidantly attached. And so there's a lot of language around revillaging and, and that sort of thing. And I, I scratch my head and wonder, well, what kind of village gathers around an avoidantly attached mythopoetic white dude? <laughs> like when, you know, and so how do we, how, and so there's something also here about, you know, it, isn't the work then ultimately supposed to lead us to a more secure attachment where, and, and so if that's the case, 
how is it that we keep putting, again, fairly, uh, you know, uh, avoidant or, um, you know, uh, aloof and, and just kind of enjoying the limelight and the power and kind of really enjoying the mic and really enjoying the crowd. How, why do we keep putting them there if we're doing all this work? Like, what's the disconnect? Don't know. Um, I don't know who I don't know who these who these others are. Um, my focus, can I can only speak for me, I guess, has been to reimagine village. Uh, in the village trainings that I've led with my partner, my wife. Uh, the first half of the year is decolonizing the mind and beginning to kind of uh, shatter the fantasy of individualism. Um, and then only in the second half of the year do we begin to really play with the possibilities of what thinking like a village might even look like. How do we, how do we engage that level of complexity where my life is entangled with yours and you with mine at such a level that I can't imagine my well-being without you. That's a level of thinking that we are far from as a culture. Do you know Jeanette Armstrong? She's up in your territory. I don't. Okanagan elder. Okanagan, no. Yeah, she, um, she talks about in their culture that their, their language posits that uh, village comes first, family second, and the individual last. And she says, in your culture, you've completely inverted that. So the individual's first, family is second, and community is abstract rhetoric. Hmm. We talk about it all the time, but it has no blood in it, it has no bone. She said, in my language, our word for belonging means our one skin. Hmm. Can you imagine feeling that? But what happens to you would affect me, that I would know the sorrows you're carrying. I would know the places that you suffer, and vice versa. You would know mine because of our shared skin, our one skin. So why are there so many white dudes out there talking? I don't know. Perhaps it's because we are the ones most in need of redemption. Mm. You know, that our language, our words, um, our actions have to promote something that looks like sanity again and has some soul in it. Um, the other thing I would say is for me is um, my goal has been to try to ripen individuals into a robust adulthood. Not uh, again for their own sake, but for the fact that only adults can show up right now and only adults can respond to the crises that we're facing. Um, the child part of us, God bless it, um, has no skill, has no capacity to process the grief, the rage, the terror, the wounds, the rips, the tears. So all of my work is bent on how do we take up the apprenticeship with sorrow and how do we let it work us 
to ripen us so that no matter what skin tone I have, my bent is towards uh, multiplying the entanglement of our lives. Um, I remember writing for Carolyn's book and uh, her book on community was Carolyn Baker. Carolyn Baker. And then the only way, the familiar phrase is the only way out is through. And then I added, and the only way out through is together. So hmm. there's no way, no matter how much you try to hold on to power, prestige, or, or privilege. That's an empty boat. It's gonna, you know, it can't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. so one of the things I remember writing a piece once called uh, "The Necessity of Defeat." Then mm -hmm. it was written about men that the only, not a single man has walked through my door voluntarily. He's come because he's been defeated by depression, an addiction, a divorce, an illness, a loss of a job, uh, and right now. Men are having to face the fact that we've been defeated. And it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. There's grace in this defeat. And if we can stay humble and close to the ground and not grab the mic, but learn and listen and attend and serve, who knows what the next one might look like. Mm -hmm. I think there's maybe a different quality in your work as well, because you do center ritual so much. So not only community, but like, what is the community actually doing? They're doing ritual, which of course works on the nervous system in just a much different way than sitting, you know, on the floor or sitting at the foot of the speaker, you know, sitting in the audience with, you know, completely enamored with somebody's lyricism it's different yeah. on the nervous system it actually does make you um it, it's co-regulating as opposed to this uh, you know kind of auto-regulating meditative hypnotic quality of yeah, somebody yeah, yeah, has a yeah. way with with words so i think that's um yeah there's like a different flavor uh everybody talks about ritual but it sounds like you're actually centering that in how you are um uh, working with people yeah it is the core of the work i mean ritual is the oldest language we speak and it addresses and it activates an archaic part of the psyche jung called it the unforgotten wisdom that resides at the heart of the psyche uh, we're wired for ritual. And when we enter into that space, some deep part of our being comes to the foreground. And remember, I can tell you how many times after a ritual has been over, someone in the group will say, you know, I've never done this before. I've never done anything like this before. But this felt right. Now, what part of their psyche is picking that up? Who, who in them is saying, that's what we need? That's sane. You know, we have people coming, like we're doing one in a couple of weeks. We have people coming from, um, several people coming from different parts of Canada, you know, Ontario, Vancouver, 12 different states are coming to San Francisco where we're doing this ritual. Uh, and it's wonderful. I say this on Friday night, you know, thank you for coming so far. Some of you have traveled from Australia, England, 
just for the privilege of being able to weep side by side with another human being. I said to him, but your being here and having to come this far is at the heart of our grief. This should be happening in every community, mm. every month. If we were sane, we'd be doing this every month. If not, <laughs> but we're not. So you have to travel <laughs> just for the honor of doing ritual together. My God, mm -hmm. what we have forgotten. In the language of the people whose land I live on and occupy, the Lekwungen people, um, I was in a language class and looking through an old dictionary that, you know, somebody who had um, been trying to conserve the language had written down. And there was a word whose definition was the parents in law where one of the children of, of, a, of their couples their coupled children where one has died so it's the parents-in-law and the word means um the ones who grieve together meaning i i, I weep for them as my own child i weep mm. for them as my own child mm. and i just thought wow what yeah. what a different worldview they yes. have a word for the privilege of weeping together yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. When yeah. people come back from the shrine, you know, there could be you know, a dozen people up there crying at a time, side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And when they come back to the village, they are welcomed and they're thanked. Thank you for emptying our communal cup. You didn't do that just for you. You did that for me too. And we've never been thanked for our grief. Mm -hmm. And there's something that recalibrates in us when our grief is actually being appreciated. Mm -hmm. I really like what you just said too, Carmen, about um, you know, listening to somebody. I, I have to do my CEU credits for my license periodically, and I typically go to Spirit Rock to do some meditation work. A man named Rick Hansen does a lot of them. <clears throat> you obviously know him. <clears throat> He's big in the neuropsychology world, and I'm sitting there doing these interior exercises, which are wonderful, they're good. But then I realized, well, that for several hundred thousand years, ritual was the recalibrating mechanism that reestablished the central nervous systems, not only of the individual, but of the, of the community, of the clan, of the whole body, the village. And we lost ritual. And so now we've become highly dependent upon these very private interior practices. Again, oh, God bless them, but we need both. You know, we need this larger body. Psyche's waiting for that larger body to embrace me mm -hmm. when I'm deep in the throes of my sorrow. Mm -hmm. How did you become so <clears throat> intimately acquainted with grief? A long saturation process. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember a time in my life where <clears throat> sorrow wasn't a big, big part of my experience. Uh, from my dad having a massive stroke when I was 16, never speaking again, taking care of him till he died when I was 22. But the biggest was, was the erosion of my own integrity, my own, so many parts of me had to flee. And I was just kind of this thin shell of 
performing Francis. That wasn't really Francis. That was his performance piece. Um, and then, of course, becoming a therapist when I was 27 and quickly seeing how the core thread of every person I sat with was untouched loss. Um, whether that was the loss of innocence in childhood, the loss of a marriage, or the, a sibling who died, or you know, your parents divorced when you were a child, you lost your family. All these losses, loss upon loss. People come into my therapy saying I'm depressed. Pretty clear very shortly that they're oppressed. They're weighted down by the sediment of untouched sorrow. And it's just crushing, crushing their spirits. So we have to deal with the loss. So I, I know there's many threads that have become part of this. And then when I met Maladoma in 95, I was really introduced to true ritual. And the power of being together communally around grief was just so profound for me. Um, and then I realized I, I just can't do Dagara ritual. I'm not, I'm not Dagara, I'm not African. So I had to really listen to hear what would this look like here on this continent for these people. So we brought in writing practice and you know the singing and the poetry and micro rituals that emerged out of poems. And we've really revamped the whole ritual process so it's indigenous to hear. And not none of the rituals we do uh, were all they were all dreamt up here by the living land. I, I think ritual comes from the earth, not from human beings. And we've been given some beautiful rituals over the past twenty years that we use continuously in our community here. What do you do personally when rage accompanies your grief? And you know maybe it's very justifiable sometimes, you know? So how do you personally cope with rage? Well, I would distinguish between rage and outrage. Rage typically is, is that pissed off adolescence response to being hurt or disappointed. Outrage is the soul's response to injustice, to violation, to, you know, something is happening to the commons. Hillman, James Hillman, one of my primary teachers would say that the sure sign that the soul is awake is that it's outraged. So if, if you're not outraged right now, as the bumper sticker says, you're not paying attention. So I try to channel my outrage into my writings, into my teachings, into my community work. Uh, even in my therapy here, we talk a lot about what's going on in the culture, what's happening in their community. It isn't just about what's happening intra-psychically, but what's happening in the whole psychic field. Um, so I try to take it into outrage and give it shape and give it artistic expression. Um, the poet uh, Federico Garcia Lorca said, it's the, it's the tension between discipline and passion. You can't just be pissed off. You need discipline with that. And you can't just be disciplined, you need fire with that. So discipline and passion, he said, side by side. That's what duende was, that's the, the heat of the flamenco. It takes the raw energy of rage and cooks it into outrage and passionate expression. 
that's a good way to take take the rage. Mm. What are you grieving most right now? my grandchildren. It's so hard to sit with them and their joy and their exuberance and their delight in this world. And I just see it fading and being thinned day by day. And I don't know what they're going to find 10 years from now. No, five years from now. Um, my heart just breaks. And I love them as big as I can. And And behind that, there's all the glaciers and the whales and the, you know, there's a lot that's making me sad right now. But they're sweet little hearts. I want to do everything I possibly can to add one one degree of hope that there may be a green world for them as well. Thank you for sharing your grief with all of us. And thank you for channeling your outrage into a really useful and beautiful testament to the importance and the beauty of grief in your book. Thanks for being on the show, Francis. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you very much. Wow, uh, there is so much to process in that conversation. And so here to help us with that, once again, Ruben Anderson, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for another Rubination, Ruben. Hello, my love. Hello. So we listened to that together, mm-hmm. side by side, holding hands in bed like the notebook final <laughs> scene where they, it was... <laughs> Kind of bated breath, and I was pretty teary about it. I couldn't see your face. What, mm. what, what struck you about that conversation? Well, so that was the third time I've listened to that conversation, uh, and it's just so dense. Like, there's so many times where I I feel that we need to stop every sentence, and so I uh, we've invented a new podcast format. Uh, uh, we need a fancy name for it. Like, uh, the, I think the annotated podcast or annotated episode, the numinous annotation, or is there a, I think it's like the numinous podcast annotated episode. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we need to do a full on annotated 
version of this discussion where we do literally stop every one of his sentences if we so need and unpack it and unpack and it. we just we don't know how long or how many episodes will be in that series just unpacking this it, conversation it could be eight hours you know our yeah. kid listened to a 300 hour D D podcast or whatever, yeah why so can't I, we yeah, do I, eight hours on out like of one hour do. francis weller yeah yeah i think we can do that oh for sure it was it was pretty toothsome yeah mm-hmm. yeah very very much so what about some highlights for you um you know i i took notes um and i i find them to be very incoherent uh, <laughs> really like just to try to capture um the breadth of what he was saying and the kind of enormity of the unfolding of it uh, i found very hard to do uh in note format but there was in in all in all of them um all the times i listened to it there was a thing that stood out to me every single time i think it's so important that he he distinguished between rage and outrage and he talked about rage as being just sort of like adolescent anger whereas outright outrage is like righteous justified uh anger at a wrong Mm -hmm. you know at injustice Mm -hmm. yeah i know that's really stuck with you because here we are in december Mm -hmm. And this conversation I actually had three months ago, our mm-hmm. lives were kind of hijacked for a couple months there. So it's yeah. taken me a while to, to publish this, but, um, you've brought this up mm-hmm. more than once. And, uh, you know, I, I had to listen with a different heart, uh, and it's been hard because I've been feeling a lot of what I would consider rage mm-hmm. about, for instance, the patriarchy. Right. And though he says adolescent, I also can understand rage as, um, powerlessness Mm. and so i don't i I think that's outrage though well this is the thing i yes and Mm -hmm. i don't think there's something about outrage as being justified Mm -hmm. that just doesn't sit well with me and Mm. that the the rage of the powerless is somehow adolescent or Mm. immature um because yes i regress when i am being oppressed (laughs) yes i because there's so much futility Mm -hmm. so it i i do understand i don't want to like pick nits here but um but i i recognize that there is a difference between holy outrage and adolescent um you know tantruming right but i also know the feeling Mm -hmm. of my particular quality of rage about the patriarchy i do find is so laced with futility Mm -hmm. and it does regress me to tears and it Mm -hmm. does feel never-ending and so i kind of i kind of recoiled a little bit but i mean i can i can forgive it it was such a beautiful distinction i understand what he's saying yeah i I don't think we should pick nets either and i I think we could just as easily swap the words around in the other direction you know and and use them for the other for the opposite meanings Hmm. or come up with an entirely different word you know but the distinction between just sort of like um anger uh and um justified response like i think your your the, what you're describing like the rage of futility the rage of endlessness uh you know to me like those are completely justified they are you know the fact that you describe yourself as regressing in that anger is completely justified um and so i you know i, I think those are just finer drawn examples <laughs> of, the, of the point he's making mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. but, and, and i i don't think we should at all argue about the terms 
you know, which, which word is which. Um, and he did talk, um, you know, this conversation, even unannotated, could bounce around so much. He talked about uh, men a lot and men's emotions and how anger is really the only uh, condoned emotion yeah, I think it's for men. Anger and horniness. You're allowed to be horny. He, he, he didn't say, say that, yeah, but, but, yeah. <laughs> but I would yeah. say, yeah, like, I, yeah, I totally mm-hmm. agree. He was like, did I mention anger? Did right. I mention anger? Like, no, I, I guess true. if we are going to actually then talk about the patriarchy, then uh, a lot of what we would look at as being men's anger or men's rage is also, again, totally justified, you know, of lives of futility, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. lives of uh, lives that have been stolen away and he talked about ancestral separation let me check my note um, um, because that ancestral grief mm-hmm. um, which uh, yeah so that's lives cultures languages that have mm-hmm. been stolen away mm-hmm. and uh, I loved how he brought up because I've seen this so many times even people who feel self-conscious participating in ritual Mm -hmm. um, and certainly in collective ritual Mm -hmm. when even when we do stuff in small group on quest and things like that people are like oh this is awkward but yet when you proceed as though you're in a participatory universe (laughs) and that you are being seen Mm -hmm. by the stones and the sky and the water and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing um, and you try it out, you know, yeah, he, he spoke really beautifully to, and yet this highly developed, ancient, primordial, almost ancestral yearning mm-hmm. for kinship and connection and, and a way to keep up our end of the conversation, as Joseph Campbell would say, with the universe through ritual mm-hmm. is, is so palpable. He also said, so what really stood out to me about the grief part mm-hmm. was, um, men need to be given permission to be fallible Mm -hmm. and like we need to be given permission to grieve Mm -hmm. and um that that felt so important to me like how i could we could just say it to someone but Mm -hmm. like how how beyond just you know we can nurture boys to be more sensitive or we Mm -hmm. can be less gendered in how we raise our kids it's like what do we do about all the fucking walking wounded adults Mm -hmm. who need permission to grieve Mm -hmm. how do we how do we talk to people i mean you've you've always kind of lived close to the waterworks you've been a sensitive man in the world so Mm -hmm. have you felt any moment where you were like ah it is acceptable for me to grieve openly here uh well i'm sure there's been moments but no um i feel like there's another part of this conversation that struck me as well that it's just that no i felt my entire life as a outcast from masculinity um which is uh you know i was just commenting on facebook that it's like what is masculine or feminine even (laughs) you know uh as we've talked about, like, I think there's specific terms about strength or grace or whatever that are not gendered. Um, so, but, but what I mean is from this world of men, I have been an outcast my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm always, I've always been quick to tear up and it's, it, it, it can, take people aback 
You went to a program. I'm just going to drop this in here. I haven't even asked you if you <laughs> consent to this conversation. We can edit it out I assume, later. Yeah, if, I assume if you're, five if you're of on a rubination. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you went to a, a program that was about um, men learning how to cultivate friendship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember you coming home and mentioning that talking about crying mm-hmm. and how you know you could cry in group and some people were like mm, that was like anathema yeah um i'm curious if there's anything you could share about what you noticed in that it was it was oh, only gosh. a few months but like that yeah. men's circle about men in grief um that that was yeah that was incredible i was actually just commenting uh, about it today saying that i you know, someone was asking in a conversation about um, friendship, and I said I went to a class on friendship. It was like a class on how to be friends, which is is funny because I, on the surface, appeared to have social skills and etc. You know, um, but I don't. I've never had many friends, um, but I, I still thought it was stupid going in. <laughs> you know, I was just kind of like, well, I'm sure I'll learn something, so I'm going to do this. You know, it was recommended to me by the counselor I've seen. Uh, and so I did it, and it, it was just, it was incredibly moving and incredibly powerful on, on many levels. And I would go back and talk to that counselor. He'd be like, so how was the uh, friendship group, you know? <laughs> and the, I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned by the amount of trauma and violence, like just flat-out violence that these men had endured. You know, obviously it's a bit of a self-selecting group because it's a bunch of men who show up because of pain. They aren't showing up because they're the star tackle on the rugby team, you know, so they're showing up because of pain. But the the amount of violence that they had endured to the point where some of them couldn't even speak of it. Like, they would just say, it's more than I could tell you about you know, things like that. And so I'd go back and, and say this to my, um, to my counselor and he's like, yeah, I hear that a lot. So just the, the amount of, uh, violence and trauma, um, that men endure in our culture is, and threat, I'll add. You know, there's there's the famous story of early in our relationship where um, some cowboys in the ferry were uh, swearing a lot, and you went over and told them to pipe down, and you were like, "Why did no men do that?" And I said, "Because when a man does that, it the next step is a fist fight, a knife fight, a group beating. Like, there's no intermediary steps, mm-hmm. and so." men typically don't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you notice in that group about their sadness or their loneliness um, or the, the inability to contact their tears about the trauma and the violence they'd experienced? Like just as, a, as an observer, as someone who's always been quick to tear up, how did you experience that? Well, I, I find it, um, yeah, I found it brutally painful. The, uh, 
I've told you the story, you know, in my, I, I think this is very closely timed with my emotional, my 2006 emotional breakdown that we've been talking about, you know, where I like had my, my crossing the Rubicon of climate grief and, you know, just like massive, I had a massive understanding of the world and the likely future. Um, and so at that time I was extremely sensitive <laughs> and so I was riding the bus to the downtown east side and there was this one old man who would kneel on the sidewalk and beg. So this, which I just always felt, you know, the thing is the poor people, poor people are extremely generous, but you got to think that begging for money in the downtown east side is not a super productive thing. So this wasn't, this man looked like he looked like he was once strong mm -hmm. and like I, I so it's funny I have my mother's family's body but my father's family is enormously strong men like legendarily strong men you know so I look at this man it's like ah this man could have been on my father's side like he could have been an uncle or something it was just like the man that he grabs onto something and it moves you mm -hmm. know and he ends up he's probably 65 or 70 kneeling on the concrete sidewalk asking for change and just the the weight of his failure you know of a man who does not have a house or a man that does not have a car is not supporting a wife is not raising children is not you know a productive member of society yeah. like the weight of that story is so crushing and the the depth of pain need you need to be in to do that yeah uh, so that yeah. led to your undoing for a while yeah so that was that was definitely part of my undoing and but i would see that sort of thing in in that friendship group that i would just see men that were just like crushed under the weight of it like they could barely stand up straight under the weight of that story and they were coming to this group <laughs> to try you know into a totally like private very safe very like fraternal comradely space it was a it, it, this space was beautifully built very quickly mm. um and still like could not could not cry mm -hmm. couldn't some of the some of the guys couldn't look at other people straight you know like yeah like we actually had a class on how to shake hands you know just like the most rudimentary aspects of <laughs> what is that yeah i just the how we dehumanize people that's just really yeah. hard to hear. Well, we have classes on how to shake hands like Gordon Gecko, right? Like how to shake hands like to be a billionaire <laughs> is what we teach people. Not how to just basically touch another human being. Yeah. So, so I, I yeah, it's, it's funny. So yeah, I'm a gender abolitionist, but <laughs> I, uh, I find it incredibly powerful to be in, um, spaces with men there was a while where we were going to the ymca 
and I would just go and sit in the hot tub. And to be in a room full of naked men is just so... It's so unusual and powerful. Yeah. I found it incredibly moving. Like, you know, like ask any man about urinal. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like politeness. Etiquette. Um, etiquette. Urinal etiquette. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm almost 50. And it's still like I go into a public bathroom and I select my urinal very carefully. You know, mm. like there's an established form. And so to be in spaces where it's like... Yeah, like where men are walking around naked on their way to or from the sauna is so different and unusual. Hmm. You know, to be in spaces where men are trying to relax and relax and share emotions and feel things and And shed some armor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh it's very moving. And still throughout that whole Francis Weller interview, I was like, I could not do this. Like, could not do what I couldn't go to one of his men's groups, like the sort of the what? public ritual and etc. Yeah, it's wow. just wow, like, yeah. really, yeah. wow. I would have thought this past year you had been laddering up to <laughs> some, you know, from personal ritual to perhaps some more capacity for shared or communal ritual, but no, no, I um. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know where that entirely lies, but the I feel extremely uncomfortable at the thought of um, that public display. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say that uh, that particular ritual sounds intense, even for me. Right. <laughs> so, like, I, uh, I have been to um, community grief rituals based mm-hmm. on. Francis work Mm -hmm. uh and basically I and you know how I feel about singing but I spent the whole time being one of the singers in the community who Mm. gives praise to people who could cry and I also live pretty close to the waterworks so I cry very freely but I did not cry at Mm -hmm. the community ritual I I couldn't Mm. I couldn't contact the tears there but when other people do it I'm like, yes, you know, so I, I did the singing and the, the, the songs and everything. And actually we had a Vestalia, you know, when we had Vestalia, we had the Mm -hmm. fire ritual. You did Mm -hmm. the amazing (laughs) tower of fire for our ritual fire. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And one of the participants there, so we all did some grief offerings and Mm -hmm. just offerings to the fire and kind of after half or three quarters of the group had gone, One woman came up, very dear to both you and I, and she is like a top-shelf Olympic crier, man. She (laughs) knows how to bring it. Mm. And I could see stiffening as she, you know, fell to her knees and sobbed and wailed. Mm. And people trying to, doing their best to not go try to rescue her from that Uh intense flow of grief and doing a little Reiki on her and stuff. And I could see people, and these were people who had just been offering. These are, you know, mm. women of mm-hmm. all ages and who proclaim themselves witches and the whole thing. Right. Yeah. And, but she just can wail from the bowels of the earth. And yeah. it was so good. Yeah. And later on I said, and, and we need to give thanks to her because that's how you do that. And, <laughs> she, and everybody was like, whoa, you know, yeah. it's so true. Like so much gratitude for people who can 
contact that and mm -hmm. and and though I can see that it rends them mm -hmm. uh, it it sometimes we need to prime the pump a bit and mm -hmm. she did that for us which was so great yeah and you know I think that just shows more the distance of our culture you know that so here's a group of uh, a pretty singular group of women you know who don't have the um, that particular inhibition <laughs> from our culture mm -hmm. who are still like holy crap this is mm -hmm. a lot yeah you know? this person's so, given her yeah because we never see it yeah. we don't have we don't live in this world anymore mm -hmm. which I well that was a lot of what I was thinking of mm -hmm. um, there was a couple there's a couple things I thought yeah just this he said people come in depressed depressed and I thought it's clear that they are oppressed, like people, like the, the link between, well, I just read another article about this recently, actually, like just someone saying, they were talking about gratitude lists, and yeah. saying gratitude lists are bullshit, yeah. and it's like when I actually lay out all the reasons I have to be in pain, mm -hmm. it's no wonder I'm in mm -hmm. pain. Though so. I really appreciated what he said about if you only have grief, mm -hmm. you know, there then there's like a, um, a a collapse into the self or an individualism and you know mm -hmm. but if you only have gratitude then you're superficial right that yeah. you need to have both to be fully mature hmm. i just thought that's yeah. like that's a mature way of working through the world yeah have you got one more yeah i also he said that grief is a faculty of being human mm. yeah we both did a nice yeah like we we both savored that i, I think <laughs> there was something there was a part of that talk where i googled the amount of dna that humans and mice share which is like 97% of the same right. DNA. Right. So for some reason, Francis Weller had me thinking about how animal we are. I, I think it's the notion of faculty, mm. that there's there are things that it's like mice eat seeds and live in piles of leaves and humans do blah and mm -hmm. they grieve. You <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. So like if we actually approached it bio-behaviorally, bio Mm -hmm. then if we were to look at like we know this thing is a human because it grieves mm -hmm. as opposed to just like how you know how much mm -hmm. hair does it have on its body yeah right? but i also think there's a point we could also add to that which is not only does it grieve mm -hmm. but optimally they grieve together uh-huh and that there's yeah. something about the optimal functioning mm -hmm. or the optimal environment for human functioning mm -hmm. is that there's a big enough container. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then what if, uh, you know, the grieving, if humans lose the capacity to grieve, when do they stop being human? They become mm -hmm. some sort of mutated, you know, they're, mm -hmm. a, they're a mutant thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, anyhow. We need to annotate this. Uh. I know. We could, we're going to do that. We'll have an annotated episode where we just expand on that one. Thank mm -hmm. you for your thoughts, Ruben. So uh, that brings me um, to the end where I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, mm -hmm. Hollyhock. Nice. Yeah, we've yeah. had some good times there. Hollyhock, I think, is um, a wonderful... I match up sponsors for episodes, mm -hmm. and I just thought Hollyhock was perfect for this. Hollyhock has... The unique ability to create gathering spaces that open up people to a sense of hope and possibility and connection mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I I would I secretly hope that after this interview they invite Francis to come <laughs> to do that. So uh -huh. anyway, that's just I'm just planting the seed in the field there. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
and they have given us a code to use all year for hmm. podcast listeners. So use the promo code NUMINOUS to get 15% off your room and meals package when booking a 2020 Cortez Island retreat. retreat. Any of them. Holy cow. I know. I know. And it's like valid all year. You don't have to rush. You can think uh -huh. about it. It's valid for every program in 2020. There's over 100 programs in wellness, social justice, creativity, and more at hollyhawk.ca. So again, the promo code for 15% off, and that's off the room and meals. Uh -huh. So not the, not the tuition, the expensive part, room the room and meals, meals yeah. is numinous, N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S. And the website is hollyhock.ca, H-O-L-L-Y-H-O-C-K.ca. So for links to uh, Hollyhock and also the resources mentioned in this episode, you'll find the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. And speaking of sponsors, uh, hey listeners, would you like to sponsor an episode of the Numinous Podcast and reach thousands of like-minded like listeners? So I'm pitching this because I've recorded, recorded an interview with Danielle Dulski the author of The Holy Wild, A Heathen Bible for the Untamed Woman. Nice. You didn't hear it, but I could hear thousands of women gasping right now. <laughs> They're super excited. So I plan to release the episode in January 2020. And I've also got an episode planned for January with Rain Crow. And we'll be talking about Sylvia Federici's landmark publication, Caliban and the Witch, Women, the body, and primitive accumulation. Oh, man. I know. Okay, so there's a bunch of people right now who are like, what? And a bunch of people right now who are like, what? Like, they're yeah. like, what? That's so exciting. So, yeah. I think they're going to be super and the Witch has been kind of a dominant book in our household for 18 months or two years. Or yeah, a couple so. of years now. Whew. Yeah. And, well, and, it, and, you know, it takes like a year to get through it because yeah. it's so dense, so right? Yeah, so Rain and I are thinking of doing a book club. Anyway. I'm not going to talk about that yet, yeah. but so I'm looking to match up. It's like a, it's like a couples, it's match.com mm -hmm. kind of thing. I'm yeah. trying to match up the right uh, sponsor with these episodes. So I think they're going to be super popular with a certain psychographic. <laughs> so if you know who I'm talking about and you've got a product or service that you believe I'm going to really love and believe in, then you can go ahead and apply to be a show sponsor and find the details about that in today's show notes on numinouspodcast.com. Until next time, folks, take care. Thank you and good night.